0: E hara taku toa i te toa takitahi, engari he toa takitini. It is not my strength alone, but the strength of many that contribute to my success. E iwi o te motu kina kai whakarongo, tēnei te mihi ki a katoa. I'm Maraia Rakraku And I'm Justine Murray.
1: Welcome to Te Ahi Ka, our insight into Māori stories here on Radio New Zealand
0: National. According to Huia Publishers, there was a massive 40% increase of entries into their biannual writing competition, Piki Huia.
1: David Geary, no ngā mahanga, last year's writer in residence at Victoria University,
0: was one of the judges. And with entries flooding in from Aotearoa, Aussie in the United States, I asked him whether where Māori live affects what they write about.
2: Into to get a little bit um, worn out by certain themes, like you kind of just go, oh, another one, booze, whānau falls apart, cars, drugs, violence booze, drugs, violence, crime. Now, do you think
0: that's something that Māori tend to write about or are you finding that's just themes in general?
2: um, I I don't read for um, an English short story competition, so maybe that happens. But I think it's kind of the legacy of Once Were Warriors.
0: We'll hear more from David Geary later. Next Thursday, the Who's Who of the old Aotearoa New Zealand Music World will be in Christchurch at the annual APRA Silver Scroll Awards. For Macy Rika, it's exciting. For the first time, she's a finalist
1: in a category that recognises excellence in Māori language composition. The news was a bit of a surprise.
3: My aunties ring me up, they're like, did you know you were nominated for a uh, award? Oh, jingles, because you know, I'm so busy, you know. Yeah, I just heard from him. I'm always the last to know in this household about anything... As well
0: as hearing from Maisirika, we'll be featuring Waiata from Te Aratoi, one of the other finalists. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Mariah Rakraku, and this is Te Ahika. Kotamia coming up first. Yayan Cranwell of Wairua pa sees himself as born in Aussie, but made in New Zealand. Cranwell has
1: spent the better part of the past 20 years reacquainting himself with his taha Māori,
0: and like many of us brought up elsewhere, he has taken to it with a vengeance. Learning te reo Māori and immersing himself in the history of his marae at Wairua. He's doing his bit to ensure that ahika, or home fires, keep on burning, with guidance from his komatua John Panirau and Naomi Bunker. Last
1: week you heard about the upbringing in the 1940s around Wairua Pā. This week, Yayan Cranwell, who grew up during the 1980s, talks about the work he does on behalf of his hapū and significance of tuna, or eels, to the area
4: Well actually, I was born in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and uh, I first came back here in 1990. so it's probably nearly nearly 20 years uh, association here, but um, my earliest one was when uh, the Turu- uh, Turupuaki was being built. You're talking about the time when um, you know, Tawa was out the back in the, the old Kota, etc. so the time I arrived first time I arrived here they just started to build Turupuaki, uh, so for me, it's quite lucky uh, mm. that the, um, the you know the fuddy or the Makor, the third Makor was was standing, and then Turupuake was here. So for me, it's been I've been quite lucky because uh, the, the facilities and everything, the marae and, and, and the kitchen and everything, and the Fadi Paku, etc.
0: But you've been involved in in that process as well, Nina. So uh, that would have been a for, uh,
4: uh, I watched the watched the uh, whare get. <laughs> Coming from coming from being a, a Mozzie I suppose. Um I say I was made in New Zealand, born in Aussie <laughs> and coming back um and you know I probably I oh, wasn't too sure of the protocols, etc So I you know, came in and met um met the people here, Naomi's brother France, etc and her, her younger younger brother Monty, Montiero Daniels. Um and just kinda of met them and, and uh, John and um and a few others. Uh but then I took off to Dunedin and then lived the student life for a while. <laughs> and when I did finally come back in uh, '98, and it's since then I've probably been um, more hands-on. You know, grab the tea towel and, and do the dishes, etc., and then um, watch for, watch from there. And
0: because you're wearing a, um, a jacket, this says Waitaua Runanga Tangata Tsiaki. What's that about?
4: That's correct. I am. Uh, I'm one of the Tangata Taki for our Roto Toroto Waitaua, and that's the regards to the, the tuna. Uh, our kai waitua, our kai rokonui mote rohi. Our famous food for this area is the tuna. We believe it's the best tasting tuna in the in the world. Quite uh, world famous, world famous in Waitua, as we as we say. Um, so from from January to April, uh, we have the the the, the heke tuna, uh, the tuna run, and we uh, dig our drains in the shingle uh, at the mouth of the lake, uh, and the, the the tuna swim up the tri- the the awa'a, awa, as we call them, or the drains to heading towards the sea, and we gaff them, and we gaff them into dry pits behind us called padua. So padua. What ja- do you mean
0: by gaff? Like
4: Go Gaff them. So gaff them just with yeah. a wee hook on the end of an yeah. old fishing rod or some bamboo or a bit of wood, and we gaff them into uh, dry pits so they don't have the barb on them. The barb's taken off so they don't get wrapped around, so you can hook them very quickly, flick them behind you into a padua or a dry pit, and then you can go for the next one. So that way you can catch... From Gosh, that
0: must be something to see. Yeah.
4: Well, in Tawa's time, um, <laughs> uh, she talks about you know just thousands, thousands of tuna. Uh, these days, was it rippling? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. these days the uh, uh, the tuna population is decreasing, so that's why I mean we're in this jacket, tangata tiki. So it's our job it's, uh, there's five of us. It's our job to make sure that um, you know the tuna, the tuna, not for now, but also for the generation to come.
0: They spawn in the lake,
4: though, didn't No, know? no, no. Tuna, they uh, migrate, so they head out to sea. So in, uh, from January to April, they start swimming. And they, they've got their built-in intuition that they've got to get out to sea, and then they swim to south south, south of Tonga. Uh, there where they meet all the other silver bellies or the uh, shortfin tuna, and they spawn there, and then the uh, the alvas or the punua tuna swim, come back on the currents from south of Tonga, flow down the east coast and then when they feel the freshwater kick or the freshwater taste coming from the spring rains, that's when they kind of all start swimming towards that fresh water. But because the lake the lake used to be a hapua, it used to be a um, lagoon or it used to be a, yeah, it used to be a lagoon, so it used to be open to the sea. And now that it's closed, we don't have that fresh water coming out of the lake signalling the tuna to swim back in. So we, our tuna stock is decreasing, and that is one reason why we're looking at a permanent opening for the lake, so therefore, our tuna fishery, which as you said we think we're well famous for, um, can can uh, be sustainable for the future so at the moment, if we carry on like we are in ten years' time, we'll probably hook the last tuna out of the out of the lake just because there's no recruitment, no no little punua tuna swimming back in
0: so are there stories of there being a kaisiaki in the lake that looks after the tuna?
4: Yes, yes, there is. Um, I'll hand it on to Towa. go.
5: I've only heard two names, and I, I can't remember either of them now. Ian is right, although if we go back in time just a wee bit, back to to the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, and that's when the lake was really teeming, or it was really Ōtaweri. You know, it was really, really teeming with eels, and every time that the lake flooded, this was way before the time too that the the, the road was sealed. It was just a shingle road coming out from Christchurch, but every time the road, the the, the lake flooded, the eels would come right across the road, oh. and that's how many there were. And that's that's without a lie, you'd actually be running your car into them. Ah, oh, that would so, have been something to see. Yeah, well, there were so many eels there. When they sealed the road, of mm-hmm. course they built the road up, and they blocked a lot of the the lake being able to come through, and so we never ever saw that again. But but that was one of the the, the the memories that's still in my, in my mind, and then as as time progressed and it got it got to the the nineteen seventies and or the early nineteen seventies, and that's when we noticed there was a change. Mm. The ill um, wasn't as great as it used to be, and we our elders then were getting concerned.
0: And, and what were they attributing it to?
5: The catch, you know, Yahan spoke about thousands of eels in the drains, you know, as we call them, the Awa'awa'awa, and, and it was no longer happening. We would so, be
0: could they, did they figure out why it wasn't happening?
5: Well, in a sense, they did. They figured out recruitment wasn't as good as it used to be. The, 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 the shingle bar that blocked the end of the lake from joining into the sea. Yeah, it
0: seems like that may have been it.
5: But the, the water was still leaking through the shingle, and so the, there was some Some of the young elvers were getting the taste of the, the fresh water and were coming over the top of the shingle. But they had to wait until the the waves were coming over too. And the bar wasn't very long then, or very wide then. And so the waves were coming over, and, and the, the, they were coming over as well. Now... They went to the government and, and expressed their concerns.
0: By the way, you're talking about the old people.
5: The old people, yeah. The old people went to the government over the time, and I think uh, McIntyre was Minister of Maori Affairs then. Anyway, they went to, the, and he said, "Right, you look into it." Now they sent down, or um, I think they came out from Christchurch actually. Um, DSIR, remember them. Yeah.
0: Department of Science and Research.
5: Yes, yeah, that's right. Well, they came out, they did some tests, caught some eels and said nothing wrong. And so it was round about that time they allowed commercial fishing of our eels. And, of course, the population of the eels dropped away fairly quickly. The, the chap who was doing it was cheating a wee bit and so one of our cosy bros made sure that when he was cheating, he didn't get go away over it. with he it. Didn't get away with it. Oh, he didn't. No. Um, so the man, poor man, found that some of his nets were destroyed, and some of his boats had holes in them. Those sort of things were happening, just to try and stop him, and because he wouldn't listen to what he was being told by our elders, and so that's what was happening. And um, yeah. We had a lot of concerns about that, and eventually, though, during the during the season, he wasn't allowed to take eels from the lake.
0: So this was a sole commercial fisherman who yeah. was granted a license to a license
5: to fish, the, to fish the, 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 the tributaries. And instead of just putting his nets, say two thirds across the river, he put one two thirds, and then about a, a meter away from that, he put another one from the other side two thirds. So it wasn't quite right across. But the eels had to find that gap between the two or they'd get caught, you know, that sort of thing. So those are the sort of things that we had to put up with. And um, even the Ministry of Fish were having trouble with the same chap. Eventually, we were able to um, get control of all the tributaries. That was through the settlement? Through the settlement. That was after the settlement, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, but before then, only Maori were allowed to take tuna from the lake itself. And after the settlement, only Ngai were allowed to take tuna from, which is fine.
4: So what? is uh, there's two customary lakes in New Zealand, and Waitahu is one, and Horo is the other. Mm. So um, mm. yes, as John, power John said that in the settlement pre settlement it was Maori, so any Maori could fish on the lake. Now you have to be Naitahu. Yeah. And as part of being a Tangata Chaki we have our, uh, our so after the settlement now now we have permits so if you're Kaitahu, you fuck up up with Kaitahu uh, you come get a permit off the of Tangata Chaki and you fill it out and then it gives you opportunity to catch tuna off the lake. But otherwise, a certain you, amount of tuna. yes we, we've yes. set we've set. otherwise if you're uh, if you're Kaitahu descent and you don't have a permit you can only take six. If you take any more than that, you're breaking the rules and then Mfish can come down and
0: And how's it going? P- I mean, have people broken the
4: rules? Uh, over the last couple of years, we've slowly got it back on track. Um, prior to that, there was people, you know, a lot of people were, 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 didn't have permits or didn't believe they have, had to have them because now we're under South Island customary regs, regulations. So, oh, we said, oh, it's taken away our mana whenua, et cetera. We said, it's not about mana whenua. It's about us looking after our resource, and this is one mechanism of doing it um, and if we don't look after mm. it no one out you know and we fish the last tuna out who's who's going to get the blame mm. and if and a lot of people probably say oh the runanga didn't do anything about it so we've been mm. proactive in making sure that we actually set things in place and that we can start looking after our tuna because we're the kaitiaki of the of the tuna and I don't I don't want my son or his son um etc to watch it on video or you know, watch it on YouTube or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what that, it was like back then. Yeah, that's, this <laughs> is what it was go. like, boys. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't do enough that you can't actually come and catch tuna, but um, here's a video. Yeah, so that's the plan. Yeah, yeah.
6: D- just a little bit, you know, about the lake, is that um, we have, have been getting on well with it and uh, it's costing a lot of money. That's to help the tuna as well to come in and out. and uh, so it's one of our big um, tuckies that we're onto to now, and so that's why I just want to say, you know mention the lake that it is we are looking after it after years and years of people promising to do things, we're doing it ourselves, which is good.
0: Which is a role that you had in the past anyway,
5: our elders did I mean, when I was growing up with all the other local lads here, i guess because <clears throat> excuse me, because we didn't have t v because we didn't have radio very much here, um, one form of entertainment was to break the rules, as Gaines just described, and um yeah we would go down to the lake particularly when the council had released the waters out to sea the lake would drop so suddenly that in some of the holes you'd find we'd you know we'd wander around that there'd be little holes in and with, with water in them and in those holes would be a few trout and we were able to go around and pick out the trout we wanted you know
0: yum There
5: was yum <laughs> yeah. but what made it more exciting was that we would have to dodge all the rangers around because you know, they would be on the watch for us and, and so we had avenues of escape if you like that we could uh, if we saw their car or saw somebody that we didn't know wandering around the railway line we would know which route to take so that they couldn't catch up with us so those are really really exciting times for us young kids although I do remember one of our our mates did get caught because he thought he was safe and sound, and he was walking home down Birdlings Flat, walking home with this trout,
0: <laughs> fish sun on, uh, uh, on his back,
5: on over his back, <laughs> and the, the the ranger drove up behind him. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, he, he got he got fined five pounds at the time, which was a lot of money for mm, us kids. Would have been but, a lot of money? Yeah. yeah now
0: so. where was so where was your funny when you were growing up here?
5: My wadi was round the um, oh, right. what, what they call the the Pa Road, yeah. So, uh, but it was Naomi's one who um, who had a lot to do with my upbringing on the marae here. And he
6: wasn't a mum and dad, and we didn't.
5: Well, yeah. her mother, her mother, a lot shorter than Naomi herself. She's one of the smallest Maori women, <laughs> but my but the nicest. Well, I suppose so, but. You know her authority it was overwhelming, eh? when she said something, you did it or else, eh? small as she was, she always got yeah, it her own back at us. And so in, in those days too, on, on the marae, this was just a hall standing on its own.
0: So, So you were saying earlier that there have been three moki. so:
5: uh, this is the fourth one. Oh, this is the, the
0: fourth
5: one. The three before this one. Right, so, and there were halls. Yeah, there were there were halls. Um, the one before this one, which mm-hmm. I sort of grew up in, was just a hall. It only went as far as that back wall, and it wasn't quite as wide as this one now. And it's still on its own, and our kitchen, Toropoaki, stood out uh, separate. And um, that's where all the cooking was done. And this place was multi-purpose, if you like, they would eat all their yep. kai in here. They would bring their, their mati in here. They would have their concert mm. in here because instead of just a floor straight going straight through, there was a stage down there where people could entertain. And it was really, really nice. And it was a beautiful place, absolutely beautiful, uh, up until the time of the any Storm and uh, when um, the floods came right through. The lake came right through this this building at that time. And... and um, I guess the people were so disappointed and downhearted that the place sort of uh, got isolated after that. And for about three, maybe up to five years, nobody used the place and it slowly deteriorated. You know, they were actually waiting, for, once they got the mud out of the place, they sort of waited mm. for the place to dry out because it was so wet inside here. And then. Um,
6: and I think people came and stayed in there, didn't they?
5: Well, they tried, but... Uh, they yeah, tried to stay the, because... The smell of the, the water and all those...
6: They were getting flooded out, yeah. you know, up the roads there.
5: Yeah, so that that, that that was a sad time for here. But even before then, in the nineteen mid-1950s, or early 1950s, the Ropuaki burnt down there. And uh, although it had a, a concrete fireplace, when we had any function on here in the marae, we would still do our cooking over the <laughs> old fireplace there. And
4: mm.
5: People just... Didn't get the idea that hey, we got another kitchen in there. <laughs> but when a, yeah.
6: when we did get the kitchen, it was really a dining room in the kitchen, and it had ordinary um, sink in that like what you'd find in a house. Yeah, in the house, in the house, house long time ago. Yeah. And because we had nowhere to put the um, uh, groceries and and the uh, meat and all that sort of thing, Dad just covered in a piece in the corner just so that can be put aside from that. And um, there was no showers and everything, of course. We had one basin out there, one enamel basin. Two. Everyone had their washer.
5: The men weren't allowed to wash in the women's one, so we had to have our own basin.
6: Oh, did you once have one of your
5: own? (laughs) I mean, we didn't use it much, but I mean, we had one of our own.
6: And so that really is what's made me want to get things easier for the girls because it has been uh, hard... But I, I enjoyed it. I, that was the the thing of life in those days, and that you just did it, and um, yeah, and so they they know. They find mm. it now. It's getting easier.
5: What well, What I'd like to tell everybody who, who's been here, not been here before, is that it was Nomi's uh, grandfather way back in 1863 who asked the local authorities then for a supply of water to this marae.
0: So this isn't on a bore system? It's on a it's on Council Water? It's on... It's on and it's been on Council Water since... Since... Yeah, it been on
5: Council Water.
0: 10, and
6: we... 10,
5: 15 years ago? Oh,
6: and, and the day that... Oh. The, the day that um, the water ran here, I just burst into tears. Yeah. we're carrying it in buckets. And but in
5: 1863, like the, the council sort of nodded their heads, made some sort of agreement, but didn't connect any water to the place.
0: How far were you carrying the water from?
5: Oh, not far. Uh,
0: Well, from homes, really.
5: Yeah.
6: And then we had the square tanks at homes.
5: But we would have the milk cans, you know, because a lot of the farmers, Maori farmers around here, had Mm. the odd milk can. and, And, And so we would go to the pubs. And Sorry, the railway station and where they had the, the water tanks, fill these tanks up and bring them to the marae that way. Uh, until one day we took a detour and went up to the hilltop pub and filled the tanks up, the cans up with beer and brought them back, but it wasn't appreciated, we <laughs> so we had to <laughs> drink it ourselves. Um,
6: uh, yeah, what was I going to say? John talks so much, doesn't he? <laughs>
0: now, what about... Um, I mean, it was a hive of activity for the hapū. Was there much uh, mixing with pākehā? Um, yes, there was, but not
6: like today, because there's more parkers. Not
5: in Little River.
6: Uh, not for a long time, but right mm. toward the end. Well, I suppose we only had council people and people like
0: that. So... Um, the parkia that you were mixing with were parkia that held positions of authority and well, different.
5: yes, in a sense, but the rest of the peninsula was uh, amazing. Everybody was your friend with your Maori or Pākehā. and it meant even even the southern bays who are connected to this place way Do you
0: think um, it's the isolation that contributes to so that? you it, become it could be, but the, the people
5: here in Little River itself, the parkia people here in Little River, in the village, sort of. Didn't really have much to do with the Maori people. But you go up the valleys, Okuti Valley, Pua Valley, which are all part of this different people, almost like a different tribe of people of, of Pakiā. really, you know. But they were is. always wanting to be friends with you, but those who live right here next door to us, no yeah, way, they no. didn't want to know us.
6: But the, those ones John, talking about that were friendly, they, they, when we had anything on down here, they'd bring meat and veggies and all that sort of stuff the park is.
5: Yeah. Yeah. But then there was a carry-on, though, from the early days when Māori, young Māori wanting to have an education, weren't allowed to go to the our school.
0: What was the school here called?
5: Uh, what school did you go to? Oh, well, this one went to...
6: I went to Wainui School. Wainui, That's over the, over the bay's opposite. Ōnuku. Um,
5: I... I was allowed to go to this one, but even before that time, up until the 1940s, the Maori had to have their own school and was up on the hill, and we had our own teacher. And that was the native school, right? So and that's the
0: school that you're right. Yeah. yeah, your
5: yeah but uh, eventually, the the locals relented and allowed us to, or allowed our people to go to. to the And that's
0: for. even though there were more Maori here than Pakeha. Yeah.
5: If we if we wanted we could have gone to the school up in Pua Valley or the one round at Valley, but the, the young Maori here we're not allowed to go to Little River.
0: The one just near.
6: Yeah, yeah.
5: So, so
0: what yeah, What time? What times? Well, so that we was up
5: about? to the 1940s. After that, because of the war. Yeah,
0: it would
6: be
5: 1940s. Yeah, because of the war, everybody in the same Thought mamai... Mixed together. Yeah, with everybody them. mixed together. Yeah. More, yeah. And they realised that uh, we weren't as, as black as they thought we were. <laughs>
0: <laughs> John Panido, Naomi Bunker, and Yayan Crenwell, nor Wairua Pa. Himihima hana Rato, ko John Panido ko Naomi Bunker. You can check out our photos of Wairua Pa by going to our website at radio nz. Click under content by genre, Māori and Pacific, Tiahi
1: and navigate yourselves around our web page. You can subscribe to our weekly email telling you what's coming up, check out whether any of your whānau are in our photo gallery,
0: and listen online to previous programs. That's all at radionz.co.nz. So, Justine, it's not for the kumara to talk about itself,
1: right? Aira e harate kumara e korero ana motona reka. This Fakatoki means it's not for a kumara to talk about its sweetness or a
0: person shouldn't brag about themselves. So instead, we're doing it for the recipients of the annual Te Wakatoi New Zealand Māori Art Awards. For the month of October, we'll be profiling them, starting with, drumroll please, Te Wharehua Moroi no tūhoe, for his lifetime commitment to te reo Māori. He got Te Tohu Aroha Mō Noi Kumeroa pe
1: Mirata Mita no Ngāti-Pikiao me for her contribution to Māori film and documentary making.
0: Now she happens to be a personal hero of mine. She directed groundbreaking docos during the 1970s and 1980s, right up until now. There was Patsu covering the 1981 Springbok tour and Day 507 about the occupation at Takaparawa, Bastion Point. And also Witi Ihimaera who received the Supreme Award for his lifetime contribution to Māori writing. Those are the big guns. But what's so great about these awards is they pay tribute to Komatua who may not be as high profile outside of their own tribal area. Like Wiremu Tāwhai,
1: Miri Merewa Broughton, Kukupa Katane Sullivan, Whiro Bailey
0: and Te Uruhina Magavi. If you want to hear from them in reo Māori, you can do so by heading to radio.nz.co.nz and searching for the Māori Language Programme He Odo presented by Anatapiata. And finally, there's the Merging Artists category.
1: They were given to Shalyn Wilson, Shannon Thiao and Kylie Tweeker. So those were all the finalists and the winners of the Te Wakatoui competition. So selecting a finalist for anything must be pretty hard, eh, Mariah?
0: I reckon better submission every time for the board of Te Wakatoui.
1: And what about those reality TV and singing programmes like the Singing Bee mm-hmm. and the Miss Puro Porau Beauty Pageant?
0: And then there's David Geary. He judged a writing competition aimed at encouraging Māori fictional writers. And the Nah Mahanga writer has covered pretty much every genre when it comes to writing. Including winning your story in last year's six-pack collection, and how's this for a title? Gary, Manawatu, 1964-2008, to 2008, Death of a Fence, Post-Modernist. That's <laughs> pretty long. <laughs> And then there's poetry And writing for TV And that doesn't even include all the award-winning playwriting So he's pretty experienced, right? Yep, enough to know the craft But as you'll hear, judging is a whole new game You were one of the judges in the category Judging Best Short Story in English by a Māori Writer As part of the Piki Competitions this year How did you get involved in that process?
2: Brian Barge asked me, and I said, yes, love to. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, And they're going to be publishing my novel. And Brian and Robin had really liked my short story, Gary Manawatu, Death of a Fence Postmodernist, which was in Six Pack Three. So they went, oh, yeah, do you want to have a go? And I said, yeah. I d- really didn't know what I'd let myself in for. When you get a box that weighs about four bricks worth. It's that's huge, you know, and then trying Did you not to...
0: feel like it was like a box of chocolates.
2: <laughs> well, there were some uh, delightful chocolates with soft centers, which I munched on, but there was also quite a few that kind of looked like chocolates. But when you got into them, you were just like, oh, so, you know, when you read a lot of stories in a row and you want to do everyone justice, you know, mm. you want to go, OK.
0: So how many entries are we talking, David? I
2: think there was 180 or something. But I said, look, I don't think I can read all that. If you want to, please have a first read and then send me what you think. So I think I probably read about 80.
0: Gosh, that's still a lot though. eh?
2: It is a lot and you tend to get a little bit um, worn out by certain themes. Like you kind of just go, oh, another one, booze, now falls apart, cars, drugs, violence. Booze, drugs, violence, crime. Now, do you
0: think that's something that Māori tend to write about, or are you finding that it's just that's just things in general?
2: Um, I didn't read, I don't read for um, an English short story competition, so maybe that happens. But I think it's kind of the legacy of Once Were Warriors. There tends to be a lot of people who think, I'm going to write something real tough like that.
0: Or tonguey. Yeah, Let's put that a tongue-y too. Scene tonguey, in the film.
2: there are a lot of. Uh, Like, the same with Whale Rider, it's that thing of, like, the kind old kuia or koru who's going to, you know, mentor the kid. Obviously, Whale Rider and Once a warriors are great, and they've established kind of benchmarks, but there is a tendency for people to go into the same territory, and you can just go, oh, another one of those, but... um,
0: is it because you think Maori writing in short stories in English that they're just kind of feeling their way? Like, Well, uh, I think
2: there's a lot of people who that's the most powerful story in their life. They've come from this kind of background and they want to write stories about that or they know someone who's like this and they write that first. And they may not even be aware that there's a lot of people written about the same thing a lot. So, um, yeah, it's just... Sometimes, even though that content might be like, oh, yeah, the same old, this, but someone might find a new angle on it, and that's what I was really looking for. It's an original take. I mean, they do say, you know, there's only so many stories.
0: Yeah, they say there's something like seven stories. That's
2: right. So sometimes the material might go, you might go, oh, yeah, it's about this kind of... And then they'll have an original take on it. So what I chose when I chose people were... I was really looking for original voices and original points of view on if the material was kind of the same old, same old. But sometimes I'd also get something that was just like really original material and really originally formatted and a really original style. And that's kind of the ones that were the great chocolates. When yeah,
0: go. that's exciting.
2: Yeah, it was really exciting. And so the winners went, are like that.
0: So you went through a process of you got you got your eight of stories and then you just started culling. Yep. Because when you look at people like Owen Marshall and um, Dame Fiona Kidman, you know when they talk about when they, when they're encouraging people to enter competitions like the BNZ Katherine Mansfield or the Sunday Star Times, you know they say things like, "We want your story, like you said, have an original voice, but we want it to linger." Yep. I mean, is that how you went about your culling process?
2: Yeah, the the ones that sort of come back to you and wake you up and. One of the most undefinable things is mystery. Sometimes everything's there on the page, and there's no sense of lingering mystery about it that makes you go back and go, "Yeah, I might read that again. Maybe I missed. It. Maybe there's something else going on here." And so those were the, that what did happen with some stories, and really original surprises when you go, oh, okay. oh, I was getting that feeling, but now, yes, that's right. And what's what they call the inevitable surprise, where you go, ah, oh, that, oh wow, that's happened. Oh, of course. But you—that's what a good writer can do: not laying it all out and drawing people into another world that is mysterious and gives you some answers, but not all the answers. And and you feel, as a writer, you're also really engaged in it putting your own creativity into it so that's yeah those are the ones that i think the winners did so yeah it gets very tough too because you're in the situation where there's some standout ones that you just go yeah absolutely and then there's this kind of group where you go oh they've all got something it may not be that they've sorted it all out but it may just have a really original voice and their craft isn't so great or they might have amazing craft, but they haven't quite sorted out the ending. You know, everyone struggles on an ending, so you get to the end and go, oh. So when, you, when you've got a whole lot of different stories and you're trying to go, you're in, you're out, that's really tough. Because I'm sure, you know, I chose 21, but 22 could easily have been mm. in there. And so that's the hardest part, and I agonised over that, where to draw the line. And I, originally, Brian said, you're only at our 20, and I said, look... This, I can't take these ones apart. So he said, oh, well, that's fine, you know, 21, way you go.
0: What made the cream come to the top then in terms of you selecting the winner and the, and the runner-ups?
2: I'd say the ones that are the winners, they really just shone through, and there was something about them. They just grabbed me, and I just went, oh, okay, this person knows totally what they're doing. They're really in control of their gift. And, and is that
0: an exciting and I thing wish, to discover? And I wish
2: I had written that story. I wish I could write like that. I actually got envious, going, oh, (laughs) that's really good, you know. They're showing me how to do it. I'm just going, I'm just a fan going, yeah, you're great.
0: Okay, so having gone through this process of judging for the Pikihuya short story competitions, uh, what would you say is the state of Māori writing then?
2: I think it's pretty good. I mean, I am heartened by the ones, the top ones particularly, and I just would say so they could go anywhere and work, in, in my opinion. opinion. The winner was uh, Tina Macaretti and she has a story called Skin and Bones, and I just thought I wish I'd written that. And um, the interesting thing about the story is that she's taken, um, I don't want to give away the big surprise, but she's taken an older myth or original creation story, and she's redone it in a sort of modern setting. Or in some ways, modern or a modern take on it, but um, yeah, it's just a very good impressive story all round, and the person who got second Kelly Joseph, is also the person who got third Wow, and she is uh, just finishing I think the Kapiti island writer in residence and hopefully so she's
0: the second writer that's had that residency I think it's almost pottable
2: yeah, so what a great experience and all power to those people who sponsor that, and I think the people who host them over there, part of that too. But um, so, um, really looking forward to seeing what she's written out of that. But this is some of her older stories, and it's interesting when you judge it, you can tell certain people have submitted like five, six different stories. So, very, she's got a very strong style too, uh, Kelly, and um, yeah, she of all, she's got a great sense of creating place and mystery and. Details, and she also has, I think.
0: Who would you equate who with with um, somebody now, David?
2: Only herself. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she's got a real. That's what I say. Were you looking for original voices? And um, what I did like too, she's got versatility. Her story time zone is set around spacey parlours, kind of going on. And then Late Antiquity is more of an older person's perspective. So uh, she seems to have a great range and understanding of humanity. So, yeah, I mean, when you ask who's the future of New Zealand writing, I think both those writers particularly.
0: Now, you write across, you know, you're a playwright – You write for TV, you've done stuff for, you know, short stories. Poetry. Poetry. You know, you write across all of that. Mm -hmm. In order to survive in the business, do you think that writers need to have that kind of versatility?
2: It definitely helps because it means if one source is dried up, you can jump on another horse, really. Basically, television makes the most money, you tend to work very collaboratively so sometimes when you see your name on screen you kind of go ah oh, it isn't really mine cuz it was created by a whole group with plays it's my name on it and it's still collaborative but you feel a more ownership but you it's harder to make money out of plays if you write poetry well, look out, you know. (laughs) (laughs) There's no money. (laughs) That's right. But you can often have the most enjoyment out of that. Mm -hmm. Like we just had a um, Poets for Princess Ashika fundraiser here in Paikakariki last weekend. It's one of the most enjoyable things, writing a poem, reading it and having an instant response. And also some ideas, they're only as small as a little poem. So you just want to put it out there. And um yeah, I find myself that I like to change and I learn something from each different genre. Like I'm only really getting into fiction myself. I had a s- collection, Man of the People, which VUP published, and I've had Gary Manoa too. So those are my two forays into fiction. So I wouldn't claim I'm an expert on fiction, but
0: But you, you much... don't categorise yourself in any one particular genre?
2: No, I like to say I'm an all-rounder, but I definitely come from theatre first. So one of my big breakthroughs, I think, was probably when someone like Emily Perkins said, well, you can have lots of dialogue. You don't have to feel just because you love dialogue that that can't be part of fiction. And then I'd read someone like Roddy Doyle, and he's got a lot of dialogue. Mm. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I think for a long time that I sort of felt I couldn't write fiction. And then I read some of the...
0: Because your short stories do tend to have heaps of dialogue in them, eh?
2: Yeah, or they even sound like first-person monologues. Mm, mm, Like uh, they'd just written I... It was only really when I wrote a story called Foxglove that i sort of used third-person omnipotent narrator and even learned what the (laughs) hell that meant. But um, that thing of point of view is very interesting. Because obviously, in a play, you're writing the voices of each character, but how do you do that in a, in a fiction sense when you float around and go into different people's consciousnesses? Mm.
0: You don't categorise yourself or just put yourself into sentence slots, but what about Māori writers who find themselves getting categorised as, you know, and, and there's a degree of limitation, you know, like you were speaking earlier Well, about... the biggest
2: one is saying, I'm a Māori writer. I mean, that's a strong identifying thing, but I think it can limit people from outside. Like, what do you mean? Uh, just if someone went, oh, that's a Maori play or it's a Ma- by a Maori writer, you kind of go, oh, well, that's, that's one way of identifying it, but it's not the only way. And that it should be a universal story. So does that mean they can't write Pākehā stuff? You know, is it? I think it can be a bit limiting, I think
0: like self-limiting:
2: Well, no, from the audience point of view too, and the reader, they just kind of put it in a pigeonhole, you know. It's partly about m- marketing and branding, you know
0: so with the with the stories I mean, was there any particular theme that was coming through that was making it identifiably Māori with the winning stories, or even just with the stories that you read for peculiar?
2: Uh, that is a tough question. I I think someone some of the writers tried too hard to go. I'm going to make it as Maori as possible, and that kind of limited them in terms of how they could write the story. Like, I mean, I'll do one of the biggest examples is it's amazing when you leave Aotearoa, New Zealand, and you have stories set in other places around the world. Like, there's two stories set in Australia. They've got Māori characters, but they're overseas doing other things. And there's talk about, there's another one set in England where someone's travelled over there. And sometimes by just staying a little bit too close to home, the perspective of the story can seem a little bit small. And I mean, mm. that doesn't mean you can't have a small, great story set around the mud eyed, but it can, you can kind of go, oh, Feel like I'm watching an eight millimeter film and I want to see Cinemascope. so some of the writers who've kind of broken out of that and gone and had a wider palette to work from, I think they tend to be ones I was appealed to
0: so is their craft any different
2: um,
0: and how much did that come into you selecting finalists
2: well, there's a couple of stories that. Some people reading them might go, "Man, that's rough as guts." <laughs> <laughs> How did that get in there? <laughs> but I kind of like the rough-of-gutsness yeah. of it, and there's a and uh you can be overcrafted sometimes, and that can you can kind of I think someone did a terrible review of a film recently and they said it was had been polished to a dull sheen, <laughs> <laughs> which was a really like Damned by faint praise. But some people who don't have a lot of craft, they just write from their guts and you can really feel it. So I'm thinking of one story that's written in a boarding school and it just sounds totally like the way a boy at a school would sound. So they, you might say that's actually great craft because they managed to capture that voice really, really well. But I think sometimes, like even in my own writing, you can feel the strain of the craft trying to make it too crafty and you lose a bit of the energy. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that that's how I see craft. It's got to kind of totally match the voice of the piece. And um, there's another one set on a fishing boat or fish, set around fishing and the kind of rough characters that you catch there. And what is nice is that the, they've captured and in a rough style. And I think some readers might go, oh, man, they don't even know how to do grammar or punctuation. But, but, I mean, I I was responding to the kind of roughness of it. I wanted to say something a little bit more about Tina. The thing I I think a lot when you say um, something that's in all of them, there's kind of a heaviness. So when you find a writer who can match humour with heaviness, you kind of respond to that. And I, I think with Tina's winning story, particularly. So it's are very you meaning
0: funny. are you meaning kind of like in a brotown kind of way? Like a naked salmon's kinda of way or
2: No, I mean with who I described her story as bold, raucous, riotous, and sexy. And I think when you've read eighty, where they tend to get into violent, bloody, nasty, heavy Kind of things you feel like you have been punched in the guts a mm. few times, mm. and so when you can find someone who can find you know life isn't all like this, and there are even in tough things there 's kind of a riotous humor and life, and that 's what she manages to capture so that's that may be the bit I would like to say about the winner just extra it's still going to you know impress me, and the reason I really like Tina 's story is because. It handled humour really well and I think I described it as bold, raucous, riotous and sexy. And after you've read a lot of stories that are kinda of heavy and get into thinking that big drama is gonna make a big story and they tend to they tend to weight the story down and maybe they should be novels, not short stories.
0: Well maybe that's just reflecting Maurity.
2: It is David. but it's you know, how you deal with it, you know. Mm. And it's sometimes you were looking for the the kind of other life that someone can take out of something that's heavy. And what I liked about the top stories was they had a way of finding humour and life and energy in the characters coming through something that might be quite heavy and not letting that kind of just drag you down into the hole. (laughs) 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 Because, <laughs> 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 yeah, that can be a bit of a bummer, you know. And sure, that's happening. And sure, people want to write about it, but it's still, you know, how do we create a life out of that? You know,
0: you teach it for today as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, the Māori writers that you're encountering there. I mean, are you finding the same thing?
2: Uh I'm really enjoying the Māori writers there, actually, and I think, again, what they've got is kind of a energetic approach. Well,
0: are you thinking like a, a, an experience of being Māori that's kind of more... Um, you, you know, because their worlds are wider, so they've had more more world experience, like what you were talking about earlier about the being in Australia been mm. in england you know they're they're not quite so inward looking
2: yeah some of them i mean they still want to they're still and like you say it's part of martyrdom. but they there's a tendency to do heavy stories but also a desire to somehow make something else out of that and rise above that you know and
0: which makes something universal
2: yeah, I think it's um you don't want writing to be therapy. And for some people it is. It just is a they've got to let this out. It's like letting blood. And that's good for them, but it doesn't always mean that someone else is going to want to read it. And that's uh yeah, it's yeah, I'm not sure if I'm totally expressing it right it's something about finding a way to present it that can show there is another side to this you know that there is a that the heaviness won't necessarily take you into the hole that you'll find a way through it i think it's the thing about survivors you know people do survive these things so if you, how do they survive it how do they find the way to go on because often if the story just it will just be the darkness just be the heaviness.
0: It's like writing into a hole, isn't it? And mm. seeing no light.
2: That's right. So you're looking for the light. And one way is with humour. And I think, like, if anything in martyrdom, there's a great humour. But it doesn't necessarily come through in writing sometimes. That people feel like, I can't make a joke or I can't find the humour in the people. And there is a humour in, in it. And at
0: times it can be a real black humour. Exactly. You know, like laughing hard out when yeah. the body's getting lowered into the ground.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> you know, it, it can be often very black.
2: Yeah, so. But I it...
0: think, do you think that comes from a confidence in identity, though?
2: Uh, I really wouldn't want to say. I don't, I just couldn't, I think that's, yeah, I don't feel qualified to say that.
0: But as a writer yourself, I mean, you've got a degree of confidence in your identity that allows you to, you know, to write your works. I mean
2: <laughs> <laughs> well I wouldn't want to generalize for for uh, everybody I think only from my own situation would I say yeah I mean it's that's another thing that's hard about being a judge is you tend to get drawn to writers who you think oh they're a bit like me and that's a trap for judges because all you're doing is rewarding someone cuz they they occupy the same kind of territory as you So you have to kind of go, okay, well, this person doesn't write like me at all, but I can totally see where they're coming from and how they've got it together. And it's a bit like being a reviewer of a of work, you know. You go, well, this doesn't do it for me, but you know, there's a huge amount of people this will work totally, and that's what they're into. Like when we talk about black humor and black comedy, and that kind of gallows humour, I like that a lot and I respond to that in other people's writing but I don't necessarily mean, of course I don't want everyone to write like that
0: Overall though, I mean do you think writing competitions are a good way of uh, identifying emerging talent?
2: I think they're a hugely useful way and particularly the way Huiya is always published from the competition I think the problem is sometimes with competitions they get in a newspaper once and they're gone or they get online, and then, then where are they? This way, you've actually got a collection of a whole lot of really strong stories, and it should be a good stepping stone for all those people, I think.
0: Because when you look at competitions like um, like the Catherine Mansfield, for instance, and there has been some criticism levied at it by other, <laughs> other writers who say, you know, some estab- more established writers enter those competitions, of course they're going to win. You know, because they're so excellent, they're so amazing at their craft, so of course they're going to shoot everyone out of the water, and basically, this has been one criticism, they just enter it to get the money.
2: Well, there is actually a section for people who haven't been published. So I think...
0: But say you're, you've you been published, and then you enter a category...
2: Yeah, I don't think that you can disallow anyone from entering. I mean, I remember when Morris Shadbolt won it and there were people going, oh, what's he doing? He's published all these books. Well, you know, he's a writer and the one of the weird things is you think, oh, well, you've published all this, you've had all this. It doesn't get any easier. It doesn't mean everything you create is great. And why shouldn't you be able to go, oh, I've written this story and I want to see what people think, you know. And also, it helps your profile. You're constantly going, well, I still want people to know that I'm out there writing good stuff, and here is a publication that 100,000 people will read, as opposed to I'll write a short story, it'll go in a publication, I might sell 2,000 copies, that will go into a library. I mean, you want people to read your stories, so if you win one of those competitions, lots of people would read it.
0: David Geary, no nga mahanga, who judged the best short story in English category of the Pikihuia competitions. There's a list of winners at our website at radio.nz.co.nz.
1: We also have a longer version of the kōrero with him, and congratulations to the winners who were named last night. Next week we'll have some kōrero from the awards. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and you're listening to Te Ahika.
0: Macy Rika is stoked her self-titled debut album has done so well, especially since one of its tracks, Repeat Offender, is a finalist in the Māori language category of the APRO Silver Scrolls. And like musicians Moana Mania Puto and
1: Henewehimuhi, the time spent at St. Joseph's Māori Girls College in Napier really paved the way for a career in singing. <laughs>
3: Kia o kuinga ingoa, ko putawa ki te maunga, ko mātātua te waka, ko ōhine Mataro te ko ngā te awa, ko tūhoi, ko te arawa o ku iwi, ara noa ti te, te iwi whāngau mai ahau, ko te whāna a panu i tīra, a enoho ana mātou ko tōku whānei ti tōpito o te awa, kia pakatāne au i ahau, waira katangata e ngā mana, e ngā reo, e ngā kārangaranga maha, tēnei te mihi maioha, te mihi aroha kia koutou katoa, kia orada.
1: Now, see next week in Christchurch it's the APRA Te Awards and you are a nominee. How do you feel about finding out about that?
3: Yeah, no, that's awesome, eh? Maioha Awards. Just the word Maioha, I was like, whoa, that's a lot of, you know, that's awesome for us to, especially just with our, our EP, you know, we um, we're very honoured and privileged to be able to go there, very excited, looking forward to going down um, down to Christchurch and, you know, different scenery, Pakapane. <laughs> How did the actual nomination come about, Macy? Uh, apparently they liked the um, repeat offender, a uh, wayata repeat offender. Yes. Yeah, and it has, it has te reo in it as well to emphasise the point that I'm trying to get across in that wayata. And they must have liked that wayata and then um, they just let us know that we were nominated and...
1: Oh, okay. So the powers that be that run the the MailHeart Awards put forward your song.
3: I think it was our manager. Actually. Oh, it was your manager that put forward yeah. that that particular winner? Well, out there, he didn't actually say he put it out there, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just heard from him. I'm always the last to know in this household oh. about anything. My aunties <laughs> ring me up. They're like, "Did you know you were nominated for uh, a award?" Oh, dingus, because you know I was I'm so busy, you know.
1: Yeah, because 'Cause you're a mummy as well, aren't you?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. My son he keeps me on my toes, that one. But so, I've just I've just recently finished up at Mahi out at um North Social and Health Services because yes. it was just getting you know, the parenthood trying to balance everything, work as well as music. So helped, something had to give. So yeah, we're we're in this full throttle.
1: So you gave up your day job eh, Macy?
3: Yeah, just recently. <laughs> it's my been my first week off. So I've been able to cook and clean and yeah. do all those things that I should be doing, you know, being there emotionally and physically for my father mm. as much as I can. Macy, what is the song Repeat Offender about? Repeat Offender, um, basically it's just asking the question, have we learned from mistakes of the past? Uh, I say, welcome to the jungle of owls and spiders. The jungle I'm talking about is, of course, the beehive, and things could go in your favour or turn around, you know. So... Um, it, I was thinking about Bastion Point. I was thinking about the Foreshore and Seabed, March, all those sorts of things, you know, because, um, cause, you know, with the, with the Foreshore and Seabed, um, that, it just seems to be something that, you know, has to repeating, keep making the same mistakes. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about those in authoritative positions. Those sorts of things are running through my mind at the time of writing that song.
1: The other, your other nominees um yeah. include um my for the waitafakakotahirangatahi and uh uh te ara toi. Previous winners of the award, um te Maioha Award include Ruya Apirahama, Firimako Black, Ngahiwi Upa Nui. Mm. It's such an honor to be in you know, considered in this awards yeah, that right. has previously acknowledged those that calibre of artists, Neha. Well, very
3: well, me and my brother were very lucky that um had other awesome musicians and awesome tohunga iro that have paved the way for people like us. It would have been very hard if it was just us starting it off, but we've had, you know, like you say, Whimako, Apurama, all of them who have paved the way. It's just, it's just awesome, you know, being able to walk in their footsteps. Yeah. So
1: Maisie, having given up your um, your day job? Spending more time at home does it give you time to write? And and you talked about you. you there was a teaser there for for an
3: album, maybe. Yeah. Do you have time to write and to start producing that next album? Yes, we've, we've recorded the whole album. It's just um, it's due for release in mid October. So we've been really busy. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> what? Because you're you only released your EP. Was it in March uh, of this year? Yeah. Yeah. So and... we've Been pretty full on the past few months. And how many tracks on the um, on the album? Twelve. Twelve tracks. So you definitely have been busy. Yeah,
3: yeah. And um, uh, so I've been. uh, I never stop writing. You know, they they ring me up and. They send me all the, um, the MP3 files of the, of the album for me to have a listen to, and then I'm like, oh, I've written another verse for that song, you know, so it's never-ending for me.
1: <laughs> so then do you have to go back to the drawing board and re-record it? So or? There's,
3: there's a point in time where they just say, right, that's it, Macy, You know, there's no more picks-ups, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's, that's how I go. So I might have to put that verse to another song maybe. Macy,
1: what's your view on the overall um, Māori music scene in New Zealand, in Aotearoa?
3: Oh it's, it's true You know, I listen to um yeah, um Magic. Have you heard of Magic?
1: Magic? Yeah.
3: With the K at the end? Beautiful. Uh yes. She does have a K oh C a C at the end. Oh okay. Yeah, yeah, she's she's awesome. And and she's only like thirteen and she sings in and, and English. She's amazing and, and I think, wow, that's the future. You know, and she's so mature for her age. And uh, I think that Maori music has just come a long way. But, we're like, again, we are very lucky to have people like, you know, Hinawehi, Moana, Purple Jack, and Michael Black, all, uh, you know, Ria, all of them who have paved the way for us. You know? And so where are you launching your album? Uh, we're launching it here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> so there's going to be a few um, concerts in Papungahou, um, around, you know, the Bad Plenty, then we're looking at going to Auckland and Hamilton and we're going down to Wellington as well. And, because um, we're going to Japan as well. Japan? Yeah, next month as well. So we have to sort of do it before <laughs> we go there and then when we come back um, in November. So, yeah, we'll be, we'll be pretty busy. So
1: going to Japan, Macy, are you trying to tap into that that particular market?
3: Um, no, the opportunity just... Presented itself to us, and we just said okay because Ka-pain. they said we were gonna we were able to sing our own waiata yes. and that's what you know. I thought that was awesome opportunity, and because I've it's been it's been 11 years since I was there. Yeah, I was 14 when I first went there, and and I was singing um you know um moldy moldy like the sort of songs that I sing in um Ehine, the very first CD that I put out. So it's just an honor for me to be able to sing my very own waiata going back there 11 years later. So. Yeah, we're looking forward to that.
1: Macy, you've been singing for a number of years, haven't you? Started way back at St. Joe's?
3: Yeah, yes, in front of audiences. I went to Kura, and uh, I think it was my first day there. Um, a couple of my mates from um, Te Tairapiti around these ways um, must have told the principal or something that I that I sang or whatever. And then, um, yeah, and then next thing I know, I was singing Kariana and then, um, yes, yeah, that's that's what she said. She said for me to be the next soloist, so... Then uh, we went to all the marae and, you know, everywhere that the kura goes to, I was there. So I was very fortunate and very lucky to be able to take up that role. Yeah. And um, when we spoke, we did speak um,
1: a couple of months ago, and you had a good story about how you, when you used to practice um, your waiata at your mum's work. Yes. At the yes. restaurant. And was it in Fakatani?
3: Yes. Can you tell us um, more all, about what... All over the place. You know, like gigs at weddings and but mainly mum had this this job at Mandarin here in Whakapane um so in the holidays when I was back from school for the holidays for some extra pocket money um I would go and do gigs with mum so I used to back mum up and stuff at the at the Manorin so I felt really sorry for all my friends who were slavering it out at like McDonald's and all that sort of stuff and then you know I'd go in for a couple of hours with my mum and you know, and i will be like, oh, I wish I had to work a couple of hours. I only worked a couple of hours.
1: Would you go to McDonald's after working and
3: order something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes I would, actually. But I used to um, take some my friends as well. We'd all go have ice cream and all that sort of stuff and go to the movies. And- so, Macy, mum was a singer? Yeah, my mum, oh, actually, her whole, all her brothers and sisters, there's nine of them. My mum's the baby, so... Um, yeah, and she's got a real, real beautiful soprano, soprano, soft voice. And um, all her sisters have all got different types of voices. And then her brother, Frankie, he was he was awesome. He just stood out. Yeah, but they all they all went their own ways and got careers and had babies, you know, as they do. Yeah. So that's why it's really important that me and JJ do this because, you know, we want at least one of our whanau to, to experience what we're experiencing.
1: And JJ's your brother?
3: Yes quite a
1: talented on the old um, guitar, isn't he?
3: Oh, yeah, he's awesome, you know. He taught himself everything he knows um, just by listening and watching.
1: You know, the popularity for you has increased somewhat with your YouTube videos.
3: Mm. Well, he's into that sort of thing, you know, he's real good. He's a bit of a computer whiz, my brother, so um, he would record us so that we wouldn't forget the words and all that sort of stuff for our songs. And then next thing I know, um, he's put it up on YouTube. He says, trust me, trust me, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you know, because you get apprehensive. Those are your thoughts, ideas, experiences all out there for the public to be judged. And, yeah, so anyway, he did that. And then we got a lot of um, awesome feedback and good response. And people were on the same buzz as us, you know, the same take. And there's lots of messages out there and in, in our way of it. And um, there's lots of people that were for those messages as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, and, that, and that's how that all came about.
1: Kia ora, and Reka, no Ngāti Awa, te, Maisie, me te mo wiki.
3: My family and, and friends, and they're, they're everything to me, and without them I wouldn't be where I am today. You know, they, they're always there to support. So it's not just me. Why, that's, me and Jade didn't do it just for ourselves. We do it for everyone that brought us up. So, I e harataku toa i te toa. You know, um, we, it, we are the products of everyone that has brought us up and we're very lucky to have them in our lives. Next Saturday, former Black
0: Panther Emery Douglas will be at Te Papa talking about the largely African-American protest movement that really came into its own during the 1960s and 1970s in the United States. And influenced young Māori here in
1: Aotearoa who came together as ngā Tamatua. The Warriors. No,
0: not the League team. It was Ngā who drew attention to many injustices facing Māori at the time. They spearheaded the Māori Language Petition which led to the Māori Language Act
1: and many of the advances in te reo Māori we take for granted today.
0: We'll have an interview with Emery Douglas and a Ngā member in a couple of weeks. But next week, we've all done it, taken mementos from the beach like rocks and shells. So what happens... If you take something you shouldn't, and then bad things start happening. Aye, well, that's how some
1: tourists reacted after they took some rocks without permission from an island off Tauranga.
0: Is this a case of parkia guilt or cultural misunderstandings? Justine investigates. That's coming up next week. Plus, we have
1: coverage of 25 years since the opening of Te Māori. The exhibition. Kua taino Mato ki te atiahika, himihi atu tenei kinga kai wiki. Kinahua mahi na mehi kia kaitai. Mai atiahika kia tato katoa mai